i campioni d'Italia, Bacica Lupo, Ballarin Aldo, Ballarin Dino, Buongiorno, Castigliano, Fadini, Gabetto, Grava, Grezzar, Loic, Maroso, Martelli, il nostro capitano Valentino Mazzola, Menti, Operto, Ossola, Rigamonti, Schubert, dirigenti e tecnici, Civalleri, Egri Erbstein, Livsli, Agnisetta, Cortina, giornalisti, Casalbore, Cavallero, Tosatti, Equipaggio, Meroni, Dinca, Bianciardi, Pangrazzi, Bonaiuti. Those were the words of Torino captain Andrea Bolotti reading out the names of um, those who perished in the Superga air disaster in 1949. Uh, we found that a fitting way to open the 10th episode of Talking Toro, which falls on Quattro Maggio, today um, being the anniversary of the Superga air disaster. Uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to dedicate a little bit of time to talk about Le Grande Torino, more more perhaps its legacy and what it means to Torino fans today, um, rather than the feats and significant accomplishments of that side who very few people living now would have, would have, would have ever seen. Um, as always, Rob Gilman is here uh, with us. And Rob, I'm just going to throw it out to you. As a Torino fan, what does, uh, what does Il Grande Torino represent for you? I think, quite simply, El Grande Torino is the reason that I'm a Torino fan. I think I've mentioned it on podcasts before. I've mentioned it uh, in conversation just with friends and, and family before. Uh, the reason I started following Torino back in 2005 was because I read about Grande Torino uh, as a sort of 15-year-old who was madly like, obsessed with football. I'd never heard the story before, um, which... I sort of found unusual that it, it was maybe not publicised as much in the UK. Um, and as soon as I, I read the story about just having a, a team who is the, at that time the best in the world, you could you could say there was no sort of European competition uh, with the Champions or European Cup coming a little bit later on in the 50s. There was no real way to judge that, but El Grande Torino were the most famous team, most celebrated team of the 40s. Um, and the tragic way in which in which they died, just it just resonated something something in me. I'd I'd always like to tell you in football, um, but after seeing or after hearing about it, um, that was that was my decision made up. I, from from that point on, uh, it sounds a bit sounds a bit dramatic, but uh, it probably it's changed my life. The opportunities that I've had in in following Torino and um, the people I've met, the people I've met, and and the sort of opportunities that I've had to do and, and the sort of football matches that I've been to um, is all down to sort of learning about Grande Torino. So 
uh, for me, it's it is simply the reason I'm a Torino fan. How about yourself? Yeah, I, it's interesting that that was almost your entry point. I, my entry point was just kind of following the uh, UEFA Cup campaign in 91-92 and then when, when Channel 4 bought the rights in the UK to Serie A, to Serie a I you know, very quickly discovered more more about the club and I guess yeah, Superga is one of the um, the first things you learn about and um, yeah, I guess for me, if I, if I if the deal hadn't already been sealed to be a Torino supporter, reading about that, that great team and that great tragedy um yeah, it's, it's that tragedy has just had such a, an impact on many levels on on, on the history of of, of Torino. Um, it makes us what we are. It's just such a unique club historically in, in the world in the world of football. Um, for me, that the, the legacy of that team is just uh, absolutely immense. And um, I remember the first few times I went out to Italy and actually living in Italy. What is there? Obviously, have been other tragic air disasters to, to to great teams as well but what I find particularly poignant about Superga is Superga is the basilica which overlooks the city of Turin so this air disaster happened you know 10 miles or so away from the from the Stadio Philadelphia uh, visible from Superga and Superga is visible from the from the Philadelphia when you get a, a clear day in, in the occasional smog city but um uh, but yeah, it's always it's almost like Il Grande Torino, where they were laid to rest. They're always looking over the city and they're always looking over the team, and that is a, a massive point of strength. It's a massive point of um, identity, and I think at times for the club, it's 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 also been been a significant kind of weight as well. Um, but yeah, I became I became very quickly quite obsessed with Il Grande Torino. I I read as much as I I can about the team. I, I you know, before the before YouTube became what it is, uh, just finding old VHSs and uh, and clips. And then when I lived in Italy, there was a there was a kind of um, period when I lived in Italy where loads of Superga films came out, Grande Torino films. And I got to admit, some of them were incredibly hammy. Um, but there's a massive culture. You go to any uh, bookshop in Turin or even in Italy, you go to the sports section. Torino is pretty much always a team that that has the most books written about them kind of in proportion to the size of the club as well. But very often, um, very often, uh, not even in, in proportion, it's just, there's a lot uh, of history, which has um, continued after the Grande Torino has been many tragic stories since, but yeah, that team uh, represented a huge amount at the time for the people of Italy in the recovery from the, from the war. Uh, it was absolutely crushing blow not just to, to Torino supporters, but, but to the whole country. And, and for, this tra- for this tragedy to happen to, to anyone is awful, but to happen to, to you know, uh, we can't, comp- I don't like comparing teams from, from the era, but, the, you know, Il Grande Torino has, has rightly kind of been awarded the, the, the kind of slogan, the greatest team Italy ever had. And, um, yeah, just... Just it's a massively kind of poignant, uh, poignant story. I think I'm glad you glad to raise that point because that's something I was going to mention. Actually, it's something that always um, intrigued me and sort of makes it even more tragic in the, in the timing of of the disaster. Obviously, in 1949, only sort of four years after the, the end of the Second World War, um, Torino were a symbol of they, they weren't just a football team. Uh, it, 
the emotional level of of the impact that they had they were seen as something to be proud of for an, for for a country which had had a difficult time obviously two world wars the second of which didn't sort of end particularly well and and they were a, a symbol of pride not just in sort of Italy but obviously across across Europe really and obviously going over to um to Lisbon for the for the testimonial the the day before um the the tragic incident I think that on a sort of historical scale I think it's it's very difficult to imagine what it must be like to have been a, a sort of a young Torino fan uh, in the 40s um sort of just coming out of the the second world war and then having that sort of one part of that one bit of joy and that one bit of something to to be excited for and, and to look forward to sort of watching them at the Philadelphia every every second week uh, and then to have that taken away from you is it is just is heartbreaking and I think when you sort of see uh, videos and, and footage of the of the funerals and they, they talk about there being sort of up to half a million people in, in Piazza Castello you can you, you sort of when you when you read about that you sort of start to think oh maybe that's just sort of being a little bit exaggerated but then the footage that you see that it the the the, the city is absolutely fill, full of people paying their respects for this great team and I think the time in which it happened obviously there's no great time for this to have happened at all uh, it's a it's a terrible terrible tragedy but the fact that it happened just so soon after the, the end of the second world war makes it makes it even more tragic in my, in my opinion yeah it's just I mean you say about the volume of people I think I read something recently that said that the actual figure was closer to 600,000 and there are actually a lot of events all around Italy as as well which took a place at the same time but I mean, I remember. I can't. I can't remember where I read this. It may have been, and it's, it's a shout out to 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 Dominic Bliss, who who wrote the cracking book on on Egri Epstein. I may have picked up in his book. But it's just how that trail of events from when the um, from when the aircraft um, in very kind of dense fog uh, hit the side of the basilica, and just how that news filters through um, across the city. And um, I guess in that in that time before kind of before television and before before the communication tools we have today it was just um i guess it was very natural for that's what people did people went to the streets and uh, people congregated and um i think that's why you just had this such just this kind of massive outpouring at the funeral um but yeah i mean we could talk a little bit why you know why the team were in lisbon it was it was because um because of a friendship cultivated by by Valentina Mazzola uh, to play a uh, play a kind of testimonial match against Benfica hence the very close relationship between the two clubs today and as you rightly said this was before the era of kind of kind of travel between um european countries fixtures between teams or any kind of organized european competition but that just goes to show the standing of 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 the team um and you know i mean we, we won't it, this is not um not a forum really to delve into to the stats of il grande torino but for anyone who um who who isn't aware of them there's just you know some absolutely staggering stats i mean never losing a home match at the at the stadio philadelphia five titles some absolutely epic you know a lot of the a lot of the biggest ever serie a score lines were set set by Torino at the time it was just a, ver- a very kind of invincible team um, and if you ever go around Italy what I always notice you can go to the mo- most kind of um, 
remote village uh, could be in the south of Italy or very far from Turin and you'll stumble across, you know, uh, a Rubens Fadini or Ezio Loic Stadium or Sports Centre. I mean, you have the likes of the, the Rigamonti and the Menti Stadiums, which are still going today. But that's that, that legacy of that team is, isn't, you know, it's always visibly manifests itself somewhere um as as you're going around Italy and I think for the club it is it has been a very difficult one sometimes because um it's finding that balance between honoring Il Grande Torino but not letting it be um uh, it almost becomes a, a kind of self-perpetuating thing with everything that's happened to Torino uh, which we can talk a little bit about as well in intervening years but it what Torino that there's a lot as a club um, they've got wrong and certain presidents in the past have got very wrong but generally um, and I'll let you pick up the baton here actually what happens on the 4th of May if you're if you're a Torino supporter and the club has always has done a pretty good job of organising it in a very kind of symbolic understated uh, and I keep using the word poignant but yeah poignant way but maybe uh, as someone I think you've been twice haven't you on 4th of May yes so I've, I've actually just thinking about it. then the last time that I went was 2019, which would have been sort of the last time that the sort of normal uh, service took place. Um, obviously, due to COVID, meaning that in sort of 20 and 21, um, they weren't able to to do the, the traditional ceremony. But uh, I think from everything that I've seen, uh, they're, they're going to be able to do even a little bit more today, actually, because they've uh, managed to involve a, a training session at the at the sort of uh, training ground or the the new Stadio Philadelphia, um, but yeah, usually usually what will happen is there'll be uh, some sort of uh, event at the uh, cemetery in the centre of Turin, which is where the sort of I think the majority of the the Torino players are actually buried, um, and so there'll there'll be a ceremony there. I think traditionally that might not always be on the fourth, so sometimes it will be on the third. Yeah, I think yeah. I think when I went uh, in twenty nineteen. Um, there was a big ceremony there on the on the third, and then on the fourth. I was just going to yes, yeah, I was just going to say, um, not many people actually know that because a, a lot of people make the pilgrimage to Superga when they go to Turin, but actually not many people know that there's a cemetery in the centre of Turin where you can you can kind of go and visit the, um, you know, visit the the, the tombs of of a, a good number of the players. I think. From, yeah, from I think I think it is the majority. The majority of the team are there, and they've they've got sort of headstones, and um, it's I mean it's a it's a huge cemetery. Like you would, if you were, I think the first time that I went there, so that was before before this in 2019, where there was like an event on, and there was um, Sensor Unico were playing there. Uh, there's a Perga song. Um, I think I was walking around for maybe an hour, an hour and a half before before I found the the, the tombs. Uh, so it is. I mean, it's a, it is a cemetery. So there is there is hundreds of thousands of um, people there as well. Um, but then, yes. Yeah, so then, usually there'll be a, um, a a service usually at the Superga uh, at the Superga uh, Basilica. So in the church there. Um, a couple of years ago, when I went, I think there was renovation work there, so they had to have it in the in the main Duomo in Turin. Um, and then what they try and do is is have the the captain of Torino. Uh, and the all the players and all the staff um, walk up the hill of Superga, um, and there's the the big monument, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of a, a lot of people, even non-Torino fans, will have seen. Um, and the captain uh, reads the names out of of those uh, who passed away. Um, and it's it's 
it's a strange feeling. I haven't been there twice. It's a strange feeling. It's, it's difficult to know what to expect because I, I think you would expect the, the sort of atmosphere to be quite somber because obviously you remember in um, a tragic event. But in a, in in other ways, it's more of a celebration. It's 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 a way to remember that these players don't get forgotten about. And I think as he, as he said right at the start, we're, we're approaching the time where there won't be many people alive who will have seen Grande Torino play. There won't be many people uh, as sort of time goes on. There's not going to be many people who um, like would have, would have seen them play or or heard that story even even in sort of years afterwards. So I just think what people, maybe my generation, your generation, um, and especially are trying to raise awareness and make people make people aware of, of this great team just for for the years to come because. The worry is that I think it would be a shame that if Torino don't celebrate it and don't sort of make a an annual sort of pilgrimage to Superga, an annual sort of celebration of this great team, they will just be forgotten about. And that's something which I, I just hope will never happen. Uh, I don't think Torino fans would ever let it happen. Uh, so rather than it being sort of like a sort of a, a somber occasion, it's it, it's it is a cel- it's celebra- celebrating this great team, the greatest team. Uh, of, of Torino's history and, and probably of Italian football history, uh, and I think that's the that's the main thing when you, when you're up at the uh, Superga for the sort of uh, celebration, you are s- sort of you're paying your respects to this great team, but you're also sort of celebrating the, the achievements that they had and, and trying to sort of just ensure that their memories are never forgotten. Yeah, no, so. Great insight into to what happens on 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 the fourth of May. I, I've never actually been to the Basilica on the fourth of May. Just when I lived and worked in Turin, I mean, I obviously went countless times up to Superga, but uh, I think one year under Ciminelli and Romero, possibly the players were banned from going up. Um, or the, the, there was definitely um, there was definitely an issue with it, it being lower key. Um, and it was another year I was away. And I think the third year, I can't remember which anniversary it may have. Um, uh, it may have been a kind of a, one of the kind of bigger celebrations, but they had actually had an event at the Philadelphia afterwards uh, with kind of legend players. So you could actually go and play five aside with um, Lentini and Silenzi and people like this and go and have a kick about. And that was at that stage where the Philadelphia was crumbling to bits and there was kind of, I guess the early stages of supporters groups trying to do something to bring it back together. But that that was kind of my very poignant memory of, of the 4th of May that any player who plays a significant amount of time for Torino also understand, understands Superga and understands what it means and, and, and actually is very proud to, um, to re- represented the legacy of the Grande Torino. And you had, yeah, on that day you had countless uh, you probably had 30, 40, you know, not just bit part Torino players from the past, but, you know, players from the from the Scudetto winning team of 76. Uh, and a, a lot of the players from the kind of year I started supporting Torino. Um, and, and I think that, I mean, I've read a few things, a, f- a few things that some of the current team have said, which is some of the players who've, like Pobega, who've never been up there before, really looking forward to going and, and to, to understand what it all means. And, um, and I think, yeah, there's, there's kind of a lot of nice um, stories in recent years of Torino players independently going up uh, with their families to, um, to, to, you know, to go and see the, um, 
see the monument and have, and have a walk around and, and never really done in a way in a kind of showy way either sometimes don't necessarily find out about it first you know through through their own social posts or anything like that um but yeah just um i mean just an absolutely amazing team and it just it's just i mean i've i've talked about this before but just that that kind of destiny that the pilot at Superga was was called Maroni, um, and perhaps certainly the most symbolic Torino player in the to emerge after the twenty twenty five years post Superga being Gigi Maroni. Um, uh, you know the, the the player who kind of made Torino fans dream again. It was Torino were in the sixties starting to build a, a kind of very interesting team getting to 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 the upper echelons of the league and um uh, winning Coppa Italias and that kind of thing and a Moroni to be to be killed in uh a car accident again just outside his home so Il Grande Torino killed just outside their home Moroni likewise um and in the car uh, that ran Moroni over was Attilio Romero became Torino president um uh, and that's to say a very bad Torino. While, while being a Torino fan working under the, the odious Ciminelli, a, a kind of very bad Torino president. Um, and then you also had the story when Torino eventually win the Scudetto in 76 um, and, and having that kind of epic team in the 70s that probably should have won more than, more than one title. Um, you know, Torino's record appearance maker, uh, Giorgio Farini, who wasn't part of that Scudetto winning team. He was part of their coaching staff by then because he'd recently retired, but he died, um, you know, within months of the of the team winning the Scudetto, which means even that release of that celebration was eventually, um, you know, impacted by another terrible tragedy. Um, and even you go as far as 1992, you know, the, the Lentini, who was a kind of modern day Moroni, or, although he was playing for Milan at the time, had the car crash, which, you know, very nearly, very nearly killed him. So you have all of these stories, which which you know come come together and in isolation are, are tragic events but in the kind of you know following from Superga have always made Torino feel like a, a kind of cursed club as well um and I talked about the literature and I talked about the amount of words people have, have spent on on Torino's history and it's because of those because of those tales and because of you know many epic feats on on, on the field of play as well I think that's that's a good point just to bring into sort of for, for people who might not be aware of sort of Torino's tragic history. Obviously, it, it starts with Superga, but there's there's incidents littered throughout the sort of decades of, of these terrible events which have happened, and it it just in a way it just highlights the the history of Torino that no matter what your era is, you you probably got obviously we'll start at Grande Torino. Everyone will have a sort of a story about. Um, Superga and, and how whether they've been there or whether they first heard about the story, the, these instances just continue to happen throughout the history and and sometimes we'll we'll jest and, and we'll say in, in a like we'll we'll go on to the game against Empoli, but if there's one team who could contrive to lose a game against nine men, it, it would have been Torino. Um and there's just instances like that. I'm sure fans probably think about that for their own clubs. But Torino, just because of these tragic instances, there's just always a feeling that something might go wrong. And the for, for me, it's it's that history is just something that draws me to Torino 
um, if, if I compare it with sort of my with my English side, they've not really had much of a much of a history. They've had sort of some some great world class players or players who've gone on to be world class. They've won sort of an FA Cup and a Johnson's Bank Trophy, but they've not they've not really got the history which which you can compare it with Torino. As Torino can can say and, and not many teams can say that at one stage in history they were the best team in in at least Italy, if not if not in in the world at that point. Um, and the the way obviously that that, that ended um, just makes it even more tragic. I think. Um, I saw a I saw a tweet yesterday actually with people sort of it was in Italian um, with one of the journalists from Toro News asking when was the first time you heard about Grande Torino and um, a lot of a lot of the sort of replies to it were talking about sort of like my my granddad or my grandmother or my mum and my dad and I like that idea that a lot of Torino fans now are probably if you're if you're sort of getting into football. Um, in sort of like eight, nine years old in Italy, you might not choose Torino to support, but those stories of the past are going to be reasons why people are going to get attracted to them in the same way that especially myself was. Continuing that legacy, continuing that story and that idea where Torino just always has a, a feel of it about being really a, a family club. When you're in a city like Turin with, with Juventus who are there, you are sort of relying on on sort of word of mouth and families to sort of take their children down to the game or to sort of tell them stories about the past and I always feel like that's just one aspect of Torino which is is, is lovely it, it just it has that feel where it transcends the generations and the, the the stories of Grande Torino that success and the tragedy that ends in like it, it's it's Shakespearean in a way that it even people who don't like football can identify with the story of Grande Torino um, and I think that's probably why even even the people I, I've told the story um, about it uh, I've, I the last time that I went in um, 2019 I, I took my mum uh, doesn't like football but loves Grande Torino loves loves everything about it and, and she it was it was her idea to go because it was the 70th anniversary um, and that's that's part of the, the reason why if it does a football match on um like just on the TV for the FA Cup final, my mum wouldn't watch it, but anything to do with Torino or, and then she's now taken interest into just sort of normal Torino games. But she sort of heard about the Grande Torino story from myself and has, has become a fan through that. Um, and I think that's that's another part of the story which which makes it sort of, sort of unique because it does transcend the the barriers between sort of sport and history and and just sort of just social life really because of because of the the tragedy that. That ensues. No, I, I, I think that's a, a very good point. I think it's probably why a lot of people in Italy, Torino, would be kind of second team in a way. We don't, we don't want to be people's second team, but, but a lot of, I would say, of the big clubs in Italy, we're probably the one that has least haters in a way because there is a, um, no, of course, that there are, there will be fan groups out there who, who don't like Torino or don't like haven't liked certain Torino teams or fan bases, but I think generally there's a respect there from from other fans and there's there's a lot of people, especially from a certain generation, who in very random places in Italy became became Torino supporters because of because of Il Grande Torino as well. I mean, what what I find is we're we know we're we're obviously uh, coming up to seventy five years, aren't we? Of um, so I guess in twenty twenty four there'll be 
probably the next big celebration. But what I find with Villa Grande Torino is as the years pass and you look at the because a lot of the a lot of the the books and the uh, the visuals of Villa Grande Torino are kind of cartoony in nature. Uh, you know, there are photos, of course, but you know a, a lot of it is kind of cartoons and drawings, and you find that some of their physical qualities are kind of o- overemphasized a little bit. Um, and it just makes me think as we as the years go on, it it does get more distant, and it is important, very important to keep that legacy uh, legacy going, and for the the younger generation of Torino supporters to um, to take on to take on the baton of you know organizing events around the around the the fourth of the fourth of May and things like that. Um, I mean, we haven't talked too much about the individual players because ultimately this was a team. Um, obviously, the most fa- probably the most famous call carrying card was the uh, the fact that you know ten of the players played for the Italian national team um, in one fixture. And the only reason I think it was Bacigalupo who did play for Italy, but may have not been in that team of the 10 was almost because the Italian coach must have been Pozzo was almost felt like he couldn't pick 11 players from the, from the same team. And so there was a random Juventus goalkeeper. Um, But yeah, that's, you know, that's all. That is is something that some of the stats that, that you'll see about Grande Torino, if you do any research or read any books, some of the stats have probably gone on to be beaten, but I, I can't see that, that I don't think an Italy team will ever have, more than ten, really any really any sort of like major, major, yeah, major, yeah, major, major world, world, cup, yeah, major. Yeah, world I was just thinking that there probably will you probably will be able to find a country where it's just a, a a sort of club side, but yeah, any sort of major European or world side where ten of the eleven players are from one side, like that wouldn't be able to happen in England, it wouldn't be able to happen in Spain, it wouldn't happen in Italy. So it is massively unique, obviously, and and especially now if you think about the number of sort of foreign players who play in in each domestic league that that probably means that that is a stat that will never get beaten um it's just i I, touching on to to something you said about some of the in italy there is a lot of sort of literature about grande torino there's a lot of uh films about it one of my one of my big hopes is somebody who sort of reached sort of became a teenager without hearing the story I try and sort of do what I can in English to try and get the story out to as many people who might not be Torino fans, might not be Italian football fans, because it is a story that should be um, celebrated and should be passed on to people who who like football. So I, it, I would, I would like to see in in future, um, maybe it's it's something where like you could you could see a big sort of big budget sort of film or dramatization in English on Netflix or something, if it, if it was done well and, and sort of researched well, like the story is something that I've probably said it a few times, but it's a, it's a story that would transcend sport. It's a, tra- it's a story which would attract attention. And I think if you could, it, it's a shame that it obviously would have to be in English to, to reach that global audience, but it is such a unique story in in the fact of the success that they had and the timing of it and like you say there, there have been other other uh, tragedies uh, involved in football teams but as, and as similarly some sort of uh, I, I would love for a fully comprehensive English sort of history of Grande Torino where you can because like you said we're talking about 
them as a team, but the individuals. I've been on sort of tours at the at the Museo uh, del Torino in in Grugliasco, where they'll tell you sort of like little stories about each individual player, which makes you sort of you don't see them just as a name. You you sort of identify and identify them as a person, and and these stories will will be in these Italian books, which obviously for sort of Italian Torino fans, they're able to know and hear about like the players as individuals and their sort of like individual quirks and sort of like what they did in their spare time and sort of what they did with their family life and stuff like that and just just small little stories where for an English audience I think some of that maybe is get gets lost in translation just because it's it's not really it's those stories aren't passed over so much in sort of history books of Grande Torino or, or Torino in general so if you you read about the names but you don't really read about the sort of characters behind that um, so that would be something where I would hopefully there's people more talented than me who might go on and, and take that baton on and and decide to write sort of a comprehensive history about Torino or whether in the future there there would be scope for a big sort of dramatization where like you say some of some of the ones which have been in, done in Italy maybe a little bit too um maybe not as as good as you would like them to be um but I think if you if you took that story on and, and sort of had it as something where you can you can then show it to people and, and that can be the sort of thing say like Grande Torino like if you want to read about Grande Torino read this book I know there's there's a couple of books out there already in English um I might I might link those on Twitter if anybody's interested but I think to have some sort of comprehensive history would be would be really good for I know there are those in in Italian but for, for those who don't speak uh, Italian I think that's a, a good way of getting this message across to sort of people who might not be aware of it yeah, there's been a hell of a lot kind of loads of those I mean ESPN did a whole series of yeah I guess sporting stories and um, it does it does feel something that would be very ripe for like a four-part Netflix series and it doesn't necessarily have to just you know even if Torino eventually had a deal with like some of his Amazon Prime things whether that could be a way of fusing the, the the current team with with the history somehow and telling the history that way it could be could be done many different ways and I think the I always think these things work better with archive footage there have been a few films in Italian which I watched when I was out there and I just with actors it it very rarely works because they often just don't look like the players and then they're replicating you know, creating football footage is one of the hardest things to do um, but I think, yeah, using there's a lot, there's enough of the original footage out there, um, and enough kind of on location things you could do. But like you said, yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of interesting stories about the players. I mean, Matt Zola himself was a massively, uh, a slightly controversial character for his um, for the breakup of his marriage um, in those years, and obviously you have you had his legacy through Sandro Mazzola. Uh, from memory, um, Rigamonti may have been the the playboy of the team. Um, you had Osola, who's well, whose whose son, when I um, lived in Italy, was very heavily involved in the museum. Um, so yeah, there's a there's this kind of wealth of wealth of material out there. And you were talking about the national team before, and it was you know one of the other very sad things was the, the person who had to identify the bodies was the national team coach Bozzo. Um which is yeah you just you just can't imagine and when you <clears throat> when you go to the museum in the museum was in at Superga when I lived in Italy I know now it's at Gugliasco but it's kind of staggering how many items the players carried on that flight are still in were still in very con- good condition from the flight 
um and it's a lot there's a lot of kind of memorabilia and just a yeah, i mean um an insight into into their into their possessions and and gifts they'd bought for their sons and daughters and it's just it brings it home that these were men these were men who had families these were these were I think, obviously i think that's yeah. a really good that's a really good point actually because that that reminds me of one of my own my first visits to the museum in Grigliasco um and they have the um it's like the the physio sort of um suitcase of of sort of uh, ointments and uh, treatment for, for players obviously in the 40s a lot different from what you would use now but one of the sort of uh, like creams or, or sort of ointments that they use to sort of treat injuries uh, they open up a suitcase they they sort of unscrew the top and it smells like it would have smelled in like it literally just take took me back to the sort of 1940s and and even though it was sort of in in the sort of mid-2010s like just smelling that smell sort of took me back to that time uh, even though I, obviously I wasn't around then you could just you could it smelt as it would in 1940s and, and that's one of the most remarkable experiences I think I've ever have it, had in any museum because this is something which has obviously been uh, salvaged from the wreckage of the plane but immediately just takes you back to that time because it's it's sort of it's it doesn't smell like something which is sort of 65 70 years old it smells as if it would at the time and that is something that like the the misusa or the physio would have used to treat the players with and it's it's one of the most incredible things that i've i've even even out outside of sort of traveling or football or whatever just just going back into that moment i can still i can still smell it now um when i talk about it and go into the museum and, and you can sort of see sort of like you say the the players and there, there was know, footage of one of the players had sent a postcards um, to his family back from Portugal. Like for them, that was just they were the, the tragedy is they were, it was just a, another football match for them. They they were coming back to their family. They bought gifts. They bought bought souvenirs and 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 the reality is, unfortunately, they they never made it back. I think yeah, maybe a fitting way to close was is often a quote. Um... I think this, this quote was uh, from some somebody gave to help people a, a few days after the tragedy. I think around the funeral was what um, the players aren't dead; they're just playing away from home. Yeah, that is that is a very touching quote, and I think it's a, it's a good time to um, to sort of move on and and discuss sort of the, the two fixtures that that Torino have played since the the last podcast. Uh, is that okay with you, Peter? Yeah, and I think. I think the current Torino team is quite rare to say managed to do something even Il Grande Torino didn't manage because uh, they never had the opportunity, which was to play it at Empoli and win at Empoli. And um, yeah, I'm not gonna not gonna big ourselves up too much, but um, I guess last week's pod we looked forward to the um, the away games in in Bergamo and uh, and and in Tuscany. And you want to give you the credit you called an entertaining draw at Atalanta. Didn't, didn't suggest I didn't. It wasn't 4-4 that I was thinking of, but um, you, you've managed to get spot on with your 3-1 victory at Empoli. Yeah, so um, yeah, obviously no, no money, no, no money was uh, was was laid on, on on said bets. But yeah, it was. Uh, I think four, we said four points would be good, and it kind of extends the. It's one defeat in nine now, I think, and um, which is the Genoa game, which is probably we, that probably counts as about four defeats. Yeah, I mean that was. Yeah, I mean that was. The kind of last of those terrible performances against against bad teams, and 
had we, I guess there's two kind of two types of regret. One is the, those kind of um, that series of games we had against the likes of Cagliari, Venezia, a little bit Udinese, um, Genoa, where we just, we didn't pick up anything. And then the, you know, the, the last minute goals conceded twice against Lazio and the late goal against Inter. Had we, I know it's just, it's all, yeah, there's a reason we, we did concede these goals and lose these matches, but you know, we should, for the quality of our play, we should have six, or seven points more. Um, and that would, I don't think we would have qualified for Europe this season, but I think we, we, we could have put ourselves a little bit in the conversation. Um, and with the view to kicking on next season, I think we are, we are finishing quite well. I hope we can at least hold on to 10th as a, you know, Bologna and Udinese below are, are in quite good form and be difficult for us to to overhaul Verona, although we do play them. And we've got, obviously, uh, Napoli and Roma, which uh, are two, on paper at least, uh, very hard home games. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you... I was travelling last week, so I've... I've seen bits of the matches. I was I was I was overseas and and um, on business, so not able to to follow them live. But um, uh, yeah, there's a there's a kind of few few trends I wanted to to pick up on. But maybe I'll let you um, let you give a bit of a summary of the games. Yeah, so I'll start with I'll start with the Atalanta uh, four all draw. Um, I think the the main thing to sort of point out here is just the difference that Dennis Dennis Prayet makes to to Torino. He's Technically, I would I would say, and I don't think many people would argue, is he's the best player that that Torino have in their squad. He just he always seems to make the right right uh, pass in in possession, uh, he, and just has that sort of creative uh, ability that nobody else really has in the side. He had a had a hand in all four goals. The the first goal, the, the sort of the dribble and cross for for Sanabria was was perfect, really, and uh, despite sort of claims for. For a foul, there was it was never going to be given, um, and then sort of you, you get the two penalties from uh, from Lukic. I thought one of them, the one on Pabega, was was there was no arguments about the first one, very soft and definitely the sort of penalty that Torino weren't getting at the beginning of the season. You've not you've not read the new uh, rule book in Serie A that if you sneeze on a Torino player, wow. In this, relatively inconsequential games towards the end of the season, we get a penalty. That, but... Well, that obviously came in after the uh, after the Ranocchia challenge in the Inter game. Uh, if you think, if you look back at some of the penalties, and we'll go on to the Empoli game in a second, but if you can think back at some of the penalties Torino weren't given earlier on in the season, the ones that they're getting them for now, whether whether it wasn't, we did joke about Torino being on the beach, whether the referees are on the beach too, and just sort of maybe they get a bonus for every penalty they give away, but obviously. Torino have had four in the last two games, so um, maybe that maybe that is maybe that new law change is is actually true. Um, but then, yeah, disappointed. I think with with the Atalanta game to to throw it away when four two ahead. Um, I think the worst penalty award of 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 the game, obviously, Atalanta had two penalties themselves. Um, was the 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 equaliser for the handball on Zima? Because I'm pretty sure there is a. Uh, part in the sort of the laws of the games where it comes to handball that if it sort of deflects off another part of the body then it shouldn't be treated as handball it clearly comes off Zima's thigh and then onto his arm but the way that they slow, slowed it down and the VAR official just seemed to be it, it seemed to me that the, the referee was wanting to give away a penalty um, the disappointing goal before that is probably the uh, the Pasolic 4-3 
uh, goal and, and maybe that sort of cha- changed the sort of the momentum as well. Um, that was, incredible. that was an incredible goal to concede four the, to up. The, uh, the, a pass was, cut right through the defence. It was the effort for Milinkovic Savic to save um, that that made me smile because it it was sort of the effort that he makes to save it. And I don't want to be, I don't, don't like to call players out, but you know when teams have to put an outfield player in goal and they don't really know their angles correctly, it sort of felt like that. And, and Milinkovic-Savic has, has had a, a lot of criticism this season for the saves that he doesn't make. And I think he's he's not had a good season, but I don't think he's been as bad as as he as sort of some people have made him out to be. But that was a, a poor effort to save a one-on-one. I know in, in a one-on-one opportunity, the uh, the sort of it always favours the attacking player. They're always going to have the uh, advantage and can be most likely to score. But it just felt to me that he gave sort of. 70% of his goal to uh, to Pasolitz to aim for, which obviously he did. And uh, yeah, from, from 4-3, I think you could sort of see in the, the Atalanta fans sort of got got upon their team and, and Torino. I think we're, it's a difficult one because I still think that's, that penalty should never have been given. Um, so had that not been given, whether Torino would have held on, we'll never know. Um, so any any thoughts on the uh, Atalanta game from the Bitsy Sorb either? Yeah, I think there's a trends from both the games which are probably quite interesting to explore. The, the goalkeeping situation is obviously they both had a run out. Um, Juric has said that. I mean, I think it's just something he's he's saying to to kind of justify dropping one of them. But they do well. The word, the word qualities are used lightly, but they do bring different qualities to the team. Um, I mean, Milinkovic Savic's distribution is, is his great asset. His I think you made a very good point on his positioning. It's all season, his angles have not really been right. Um, he should have got closer to a lot of a lot of shots. Um, I think there was that three kick where Udinese scored. Uh, I think Forestieri that was made to look like a great goal. But actually, if he if he if he'd covered his goal a bit better, he would have he probably would have saved it. And there's kind of been countless versions of that. But sure is just um, he's a fairly solid keeper in some ways, but. You know, every three games, he's he's going to make a mistake. I think he's a backup keeper. I wouldn't want any of them as first choice next year, and I'm not sure Milinkovic Savage actually makes sense as a backup keeper. So, do should the club have a a little look at, at Jamelo going for these final few games? Maybe just give him the experience, and for him to be the backup to a a Carano or um, or, or someone else next season. I just think I just think if Torino had a reliable goalkeeper, um, it would make a big difference. And I guess I'll, I'll let you answer that in a second. But and the second point I thought was quite interesting is the forwards. So we Sanabria played in in Bergamo and play, gave a Sanabria performance in that he, he linked up very well. Um, he got a goal um, and everything I've heard has been very positive. And then he goes to, he was injured for, for Empoli and Empoli gives uh, Pellegri a chance. Um I think his first start um, and I'll, I'll get your comments on it but again what I heard is Pellegri didn't play very well and gave away the goal and then Belotti comes on and we've talked a lot about Belotti and often as a forward it's when you're coming on for your team chasing chasing the game it's actually quite a nice position to be in because you know you're going to get service you're playing against a tired defence gets two penalties then he gets his hat trick 
uh, you know, with the Belotti, is there a little is there a little debate now where he's got his hundred goals? He's the second um, all time Torino goal scorer. He's got in between Pulici and, and Graziani now. Is a I know and that's really nice for him because it's a real kind of tangible thing he can he's achieved at Torino. He's not won anything with the club, but to to be only the second player to hit a hundred goals in, in Serie A is he will always have that. And now, say if he stayed for another two seasons, is that an yeah? You know, do you just do you just decide to become a Torino legend and become all time record goal scorer? If there is a desire, you know, the club, the team, we've had our frustrations, but the team's getting younger. It's moving in the right direction. There's a lot of deadwood has been cleared across this season. I think the transfer window, does, if they can keep some of the players like Bre- uh, Brecolo is a probably case in point on his current form, but probably Brecolo and Bright can keep them, um, sort out the goalkeeping situation and then tweak the, the defence and the, the wing-back areas a little bit. You know, then we should be able to build on this season, and 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 maybe Belotti with a, with a fully fit Belotti, um, we could get him back firing again. Um, you know, you just obviously talking very positively after a good twenty minutes at Empoli, but I do still wonder in his mindset. You know, you've talked about him going to Atalanta, but I just don't see I don't see the value in him going to Atalanta. He's not gonna. If he went to a mega club, I could understand him having that experience of playing in, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of in the biggest arenas and the, the biggest stadiums, and just and have sharing, a, you know, sharing a changing room with with a kind of different, you know, different kind of quality of player and testing himself even as a reserve. But going to going to Atalanta, yeah, he may play an attractive team, scoring a lot of goals, but ultimately, it's. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's going to be, um, I don't think he's going to be going somewhere to, to win things. And um, whereas Torino, there is, that, there is that kind of possibility there to make to make history. I mean, I don't know what the relationship really is like with the club. I don't know if he's already signed somewhere else. But um, but I thought, yeah, the, the, the two games, the goalkeeping situation, definitively, we need to sort that out in the summer. The striking Gary, we are going to need to sort out. Um, um, and it'll be yeah, it, and it's going to be a domino effect from whatever Blotti has decided to do. Yeah, I think just working back on those points, Jamelo was a point that I was going to make uh, exactly. If you think of all the Torino goalkeepers we've had this season, he's probably lucky that he's got a, a lower sample size, but he's had one start, one clean sheet, and, and did everything that that he needed to do. I'd like to see him be given an opportunity in in the last three games, because, like you say, he's a local lad. Uh, if even worst case scenario, he, he becomes second choice goalkeeper. Um, I don't think, I don't think he's going to. Even if he he keeps three unbelievable has three unbelievable performances in the, in the last three games of the season, they'd sort of they'd back him to be number one for next year. But I think it would, given the fact that we do seem to be rotating the keepers, it'd be good to give him an opportunity when he's done nothing wrong when when sort of given the game. Um, Pellegrini's performance against Atalanta uh, against Empoli, sorry. Um, was it, I didn't think he did terribly. I think I think he and, and just I'll, I'll discuss a little bit about the game and, and say about my sort of plans for next season. He did a couple of things which I don't think I've ever seen a striker do, um, and maybe a couple of people might have noticed it as well. Is that he made a couple of like sort of uh, tackles, but 
in the Torino box to win the ball. Uh, so in an attacking area. So so there was one in the first half where sort of like it's going towards the defender. It looks like he took a he took a dodgy touch and it's going towards the defender and he like two sort of two foots the defender to try and sort of reclaim the ball and gets the ball back and um sort of regains possession and he did it again in the in the second half I think and there's definitely a player in there his his fitness record is is as we know it, it's not great and he he probably needs to play football. Um but I, if we could get him for a sort of cut price fee, I, I think the feeling with with Juric's football, you need three strikers like we've had this season. We had Bellotti, uh, Sanabria, and Pellegrini. I think we would need that next season as well. Um, I think Sanabria is a good sort of second choice. Uh, I think Pellegrini would be a good sort of third choice, and then the question mark would be whether you, you have a main striker. Um, if Bellotti if Bellotti stays, I think Juric. I think Juric. Everything that he said about him publicly has been positive. So I do think even though the results might not have been as good with him in the team, I think Juric really uh, respects him and really appreciates him as a player. Um, and, and I agree. I think it needed something like that Empoli game. And it was a bit of a freak game to get two penalties. Again, the first of which, even even as a big bigger Torino fan as I am, I don't. I wasn't even claiming a penalty. Your friend Christian Ansaldi wasn't even claiming a penalty. He, I, I, I genuinely I think, thought. I, I think on the replay, though, if you watch the replay, Ansaldi is, Ansaldi go. From what I saw, he did go right up to the referee and give it the. Uh, I see, I see. I, I thought on the on the replay, I saw. I thought he asked for a corner, and then because then it cut. So when it was when it's live, so maybe after they've sort of after they've realised what's happened, they've sort of because. I think the referee gives the penalty really early. Um, but initially, what I felt was that um, it, it has the shot, the flex goes away, and somebody turns around asking for the corner, and then, the, and then uh, on the live game, it cuts away. And then the next thing you see is just all the Empoli players uh, crowd around the referee, and I was like, well, they really don't want to give away this corner. Uh, they obviously know Bremer's just... Uh, well, Premier wasn't even playing, so they didn't have to worry about that. But they, were, but then that, it was only then when I realised that they'd actually given away a a, um, a penalty rather than uh, rather than the corner. I, I thought that was super harsh. The second one, I don't think have any arguments on. Um, but yeah, the the point I'd make is I think it needed some sort of like freak event like that where Bellotti's got a hat trick in ten minutes, just so that even now if if he doesn't set if he doesn't score another goal or he, and he does leave the club at the end of the season, there's still that sort of like one positive memory to sort of raise, uh, rise up in the um, sort of goal-scoring history of Torino. I think I think it, there is a case for him to stay. I think it makes a lot of sense for him to stay for all parties. I think, like you say, would you rather be on the bench? I, I, don't, I can't see Bellotti going into sort of a, a champ. I, I, think, I don't think he would leave Italy. And then I can't see him going into one of the top four teams. Um, yeah, I don't think he'd go to Juventus if that was even even if they wanted him. But I don't think he would do that. Um, so then you so if you're looking at Champions League teams, you're looking at uh, AC Milan, Inter, and Napoli. Do you see Bellotti starting for any of those sides? Probably not. So then I think I think the the question mark would then come is to if he gets an offer that he that does even. He's saying AC Milan where he's going to be on the bench in a sort of Scanetto chasing Champions League side. I don't think anybody can blame him for going. I think he's done 
as the, as the stats show, he's done a, an unbelievable job for Torino. He's been a brilliant servant. Um, but I do think that the sensible option for him um, and for the club, especially because if you think even if we, you offer him sort of a, a €3 million Euro a year contract, it's going to be a lot cheaper than, than trying to sign a replacement because if he does leave, you do need another main striker. You wouldn't be comfortable with sort of Sanabria being your only uh, sort of contracted striker at the club. So I think the conditions are there for him to stay. If, say, say Torino had this season last year, so Blotti still had a, con- a year left of his contract, I think he would renew his contract. So the, the, the difference there is the fact that he has the option that he can leave for free. Um, I think the damage was done when um, we were messing around with sporting directors and when we were really struggling and looking like we meant, might end up in Serie B. Um, like you said, yeah, it's quite a question of timing, whereas if he did, yeah, if he did have more time left in his contract, he, he may well sign now. Um, yeah, I think if, if there's, I personally, I think if there's an offer there from Milan, bearing in mind their forwards, Zuru and Ibrahimovic, who are, who are both getting on, I think he'll go and I think he would go in whatever, whatever promises he had. Um, also playing Champions League football. But if you, yeah, if he wasn't to get, you know, there's teams like Roma. I can't see him going to Lazio because he, I don't think it would work with Immobile. Um, and and he did, then you get into like of Fiorentina and Atalanta. So yeah, I think I think I think from a Torino perspective, I think that's where I don't think you can you can afford to be um, annoyed or, or uh, any decision that Belotti makes because he's been at the club for for six seven years. He's scored the goals. He's he's done he's done what he was paid for what we bought him to do. Uh, I think that's where the frustration might come in a little bit if he if he did move to sort of like a similar sort of like say a Fiorentina, a, a Sassuolo, a, an Atalanta, where we're like, well, well, what can you do there that you can't do with Torino? And I think some players some players say that they would rather win. I think and I think it's true for some, some players who'd rather win sort of like one trophy at a club that you've got an identity to than sort of five trophies at just like any club or just who 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 realistically would win it without you. Um, like if, if Torino got one more season in, in Europe or or one season where they won the Coppa Italia with Bellotti there, I think that would be something that he would, he could look back on his career and be like, okay, yeah, I didn't didn't play in the Champions League, I didn't sort of win a Scudetto, but but look at what I mean to to this club and, and as we've discussed in this part, Torino are a special club with special fans who remember their history like maybe no other team do in Italy, and if if Bellotti stayed and continue to sort of maybe maybe match to to beat Pulisic's record he would go down in history as, as one of the best Torino strikers of all time yeah I mean I wonder if you put put a scenario to him where he said you sign his contract you'll beat Pulisic's record you'll win a Coffer Italia okay I'm dre- dreaming a little bit but let's you know let's say the stars align you know the good thing with Juric is the competitive in 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 the bigger matches so you know if if for me, the competition needs to shake up, and then also we need to change our mentality. But yeah, let's just put it out there. If the team continues to grow, and he's already won the Euros as a Torino player, yeah, that I think that would be, um, you know, maybe one of the seasons he you throw in a Capo Cannonieri as well. But yeah, that would be a pretty, pretty decent career. Um, I, th- I think the I think the fact that actually he's sort of had a number of injuries this season, he's not had his, his best campaign. 
might just be the fact that he's had sort of like so many years as being a first choice striker where he played no matter even in even in poor form he played. Whereas actually having that option of you, you could rest him, you can you can bring Snabby in, you can bring uh, Pellegrini in if he if he signs permanently. I mean that's quite a, rather than then Belotti being the sort of plan B, and then always then having to sort of he's he's a strange player because I always feel like sometimes he does need a couple of games as well. Whereas I don't think he would be a massive like as he saw in the Euros when he wasn't a a regular starter. I don't think his performances were there, so he does need to be sort of number one, get his sort of get in tune it he had a couple of efforts even in the Empoli game which were which were way with before he got the before he finally managed to get his sort of his hat trick goal. Um so yeah, I th- I think the conditions are definitely there. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um but I don't think there'll be any animosity from my side, especially if, if he does decide to leave because because the club have, have sort of put him in that position where it's become a possibility and if he fancies trying his, his chances elsewhere then I'd I'd probably have to go and wish him luck. Yeah, I think the, the final thing for me in the Empoli game is it felt a little bit payback for the reverse fixture where we were 2 0 up and Singo does absolutely made an absolutely ridiculous decision to make a professional foul. Uh, there's no way Empoli would have got back into that match. And perhaps without the sending off this weekend, we may not have, we may have got back into the match, but we may not have won it. So. No question mark. Um, no, no uh, question mark about that being a red card either. No, that was um, yeah. It's one of those ones as well when it's kind of slowed down a bit, it looks even worse. But, um, but yeah, that was a kind of kind of clear red card. Um, so this weekend, three games to go. Um, penultimate home game is against Napoli. It's at the worst possible fixture timing slot for anyone based in the UK because uh, it's the pretty much the early match of the Serie A weekend, not shown live. Um, so Napoli, they've qualified for the Champions League. Their form has been patchy, but they have just battered Sassuolo 6-1. Where Sassuolo, from what I saw the highlights, you know, we could have beaten Sassuolo 6-1 in our home game had we taken our chances. They are defensively a very bad team. Um, so, yeah, so they've got them into the Champions League. There is still um, a lot to play for in terms of staying above Juventus into third uh, financially. Especially, so they're not gonna they're not gonna come and, and, and down tools, but they've I guess they've achieved their um, would say their objective for the season because personally I think they they should have been still be in the title race, but um, it may not be the worst time to play them play them in that sense. I I mean let's do the form guide against Napoli. I didn't realise it was this bad, but last six home games against them we've lost five, drawn one, we've had a few spankings. Um, because I think historically before that it was once we, we probably did have the upper hand, but it was um, um, yeah, I, I think it's probably the worst run in our history of at home against Napoli, and we, they have had um, they have had ways in recent seasons of making us look a bit silly. Um, we've especially under under in the Sarri years as well. We um, we just didn't handle them very well. And there was that game also in Naples where Mertens got four. Um, we've conceded a lot of goals to them. Um, from a Torino point of view, Lukic is suspended, so I guess it'll either be a Pobega or a Mandragora with Richie in midfield, if not both, unless uh, Carol Letty um, appears from nowhere. But yeah, I mean, one defeat in nine for us. Um, 
before we go to Verona and then the last game of the season at home to Roma, who we don't know what they'll have to play for. I don't know where, if they get to the Conference League final, whether they'll have that on their mind. But I guess one game at a time. I find this a very hard one to call. And, and as I'm at, we're on a bit of a roll with predictions, I don't necessarily want to predict Torino to lose. But I guess my instinct feels like a kind of 2-1 defeat, possibly. But I'm probably going to... I'm probably going to be a bit more positive and maybe say the games are getting a lot more open. Um, so I may be going for like a 2 2. I'm going, to, um, I'm going to slip my neck out. I think I might go for a 3 0 win. I just feel like you've, you've said it a couple of times on the pod before. We we sort of owed a, a victory against one of the bigger sides where we sort of put, to, put in a performance and get the win that we deserve. And I just think that if Torino do that and, and, and do that, performance that like then they've done against they've done against Juve, they've done against Milan, they've done against Inter. Do will a Napoli side who basically I don't think a side who have sort of thrown away the 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 chance of being in the Skeleto race, whether they have that same motivation to come back just to finish third rather than fourth against Juventus. Um like I said that their season in terms of I mean technically not out of the title race I don't think but um, mathematically it's almost impossible I just I think that if we get into that sort of into that lead we might be able to um, we might be able to hold on Yeah I think probably in this last three games there's a few bingo things to look out for I think uh, Jamelo will probably get a going goal I think there'll be a farewell appearance for Ansaldi at some point and possibly Itzo Um I think Brecolo really needs to show something in these last three games as not to create any kind of doubt um, because it will be a significant investment uh, to bring him in. And on the basis of the first half of the season, it was a no-brainer. But performances have just, yeah, have, have got poorer and poorer. Um, what surprised me prior is that is, I think both games he came close. To, if not, he didn't play 90 minutes. He came close to playing 90 minutes. Which was, I was stunned when I saw him in the starting lineup against Atalanta, I have to say, considering the nature of his injury. But yeah, it'd be good, be kind of good to see him get a run of games. There's a lot of talk can Bellotti make it seven seasons in, in double figures? It's, for me, it's going to be a question of how much game time with only playing one forward. And I suspect he's going to have to give Pellegrini a bit more of a run out if we are thinking of. Of activating the, the the fee from Monaco, we're going to need to look at him a bit more. Um, I think Sanabria will start at least one of the last three games. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many more games, how many of those three games Belotti will start, um, unless he, you know, there is an option maybe of playing Sanabria a bit deeper in one of those matches. But that, that's to kind of keep an eye on as well. Um, and yeah, something I've not said for many a season. I'm kind of really enjoying watching Torino's midfield at the moment. I think we, I think that is the area. Uh, we might have to look at a kind of pub, uh, bringing in someone to kind of replace Pobega's energy. Um, but apart from that, I think they're maybe fairly well placed there for next season, unless we get some kind of crazy offer for for, for Lukic. So, um, um, yeah, it's um, I say it's a kind, it's kind of a a nice time to be a Torino fan for the first time in a few years. It's, it's a young team playing the right way. Um, I always think as well in the 4th of May, 
the fixture around whenever we play in the fourth of May, I don't think we ever lose. And the fixture around Superga, I think historically, this may just I may be making this up, but uh, but I don't feel we we lose too many around the Superga time. And there was a famous well famous we were in Serie B. It was a game against Napoli, I think, in '99 and the 50th anniversary of Superga, where we were both where we were going for promotion, we had to win, and we beat them three two after being perhaps two one down. Um, so maybe that's a good omen as well. Um, but I think, yeah, we we started with Villa Grande Torino and I think it'd be nice. Yeah, it may not mean anything in terms of winning anything or even moving above 10th place, but it would just be nice to for the team, having been to the Mass this afternoon, um, just to have those players, that, that team on their mind in a positive way on, on Saturday. I think, that's a, I think that's a perfect way to end it. Hopefully, um, hopefully we've managed to do uh, Grande Torino justice uh, in this podcast, and hopefully the players can can go out on on Saturday and and put in a performance that they would be uh, proud of in in the stadium that that bears their name. Forza Toro. Forza Toro. Thank you.